What follows may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good evening, folks, and welcome back to Audiot. I mean, it's evening for me. I don't know if it is for you guys. It's not my business. Anyway, before we start today, I just want to take a minute and explain a mistake that I made in the previous episode. Nothing with the material, which, as always, was fantastic. But in the very beginning of the episode, I referenced another show called Box of Oddities, hosted by Kat and Jethro Toth. And I stumbled over myself, and I referred to him as Jethro Tull. And since then, I have been able to stop picturing Ian Anderson just jumping around, playing his flute, watching Unsolved Mysteries. And, you know, it just, it makes me uncomfortable. So, I just wanted to uh, touch base there and clear that up. I actually messaged Kat and Jethro after the fact and let them know what I did, and they, they had a laugh about it, because they're super chill people. Again, if you're not listening to Box of Oddities, you absolutely should. It is hilarious. I fly my freak flag proudly. And with that, let's get into it. I had this whole conspiracy theory episode figured out for targeted citizens and gang stalking, but this morning I was reading about something that I found very interesting and kind of hilarious, so... I'm throwing out the script. I want to talk about this today. Has anybody here heard of Korishanity? Because it is fascinating. Korishanity is basically a cult. It's a set of religious pseudoscientific beliefs founded by Cyrus Teed. And one of their core beliefs is, no pun intended, it's the core, uh, the core of the earth. They theorize that the world is hollow and that the universe is inside it. And considering that uh, there are people right now who believe that the Earth is flat and that we are hurtling through space on an enormous frisbee, uh, this just seemed to kind of hit home for me. So I was excited about this one. It's one of those things that it's so ridiculous, but... You have to know there's still somebody out there that believes this, you know? And that's fascinating and hilarious at the same time to me. Granted, Korishanity was founded in 1869, but guarantee there's still some dude out there who's like, This guy knew the truth. Check your facts, sheeple. So let's get into it. Cyrus Teed was born in 1839, and he was a U.S. eclectic physician. For those unaware, an eclectic physician practices eclectic medicine, which is the use of botanical remedies and other substances and physical therapy in favor of modern medicine for the time, as well as an alchemist, which you can Google because that's not hard to find, and you're adults. So Teed studied medicine before opening his own medical practice in Utica, New York. In his work as an eclectic physician, he was very interested in unconventional experiments, uh, mostly involving alchemy and also involving dangerously high levels of electricity. And during an experiment in 1869, he was badly shocked to the point of unconsciousness. After waking, T claimed that he was visited by a divine spirit who told him that he was the Messiah. And when he woke, he was inspired to apply his scientific knowledge to, quote, redeem humanity, and he changed his first name to Koresh, which is the Hebrew version of Cyrus. If that name sounds familiar at all, it's also the last name of David Koresh, who was the head of the Branch Davidian cult involved in the Waco siege in 1993. David Koresh, originally born Vernon Wayne Howell, changed his name in 1990 
uh, Koresh, again, being the biblical name of Cyrus the Great, which was a Persian king who was also named the Messiah, and David for the biblical King David. Beyond that, I don't think there was any particular relation between the Branch Davidians and Koreshanity. So after receiving this divine message, Teed would go on to denounce the idea that the Earth revolved around the Sun, and instead pioneered his own theory of the universe known as Cellular Cosmogony, which, full disclosure, took me like nine takes to get right. So Cellular Cosmogony is a form of hollow Earth theory, which puts forth the idea that the Earth and the universe are contained within a concave sphere, and that the Sun is an invisible electromagnetic battery revolving around the Earth's center on a 24-year cycle. The sun and moon that we see in the sky are a reflection of that battery, and the stars are reflecting off of seven mercurial disks that float in the Earth's center. Cellular cosmogony also believes that inside the Earth are three separate atmospheres. The first is composed of oxygen and nitrogen, which is the air that we breathe. The second is a hydrogen atmosphere above it, and the third is an arboron atmosphere in the center. The Earth's crust, or the outer shell of the sphere, is 100 miles thick and has 17 layers. The outer seven are metallic with a gold rind on the outermost layer. And the middle five are mineral, and the five inward are the geologic strata. Inside the shell there is life, and outside there is a void and nothingness. Which is a double negative that I just realized I said. Among some of the other beliefs of Koreshanity is reincarnation, which is the belief that people are reborn after they die. And then immediately following that is immortality, which is the belief that people will not die. So it seems like there's some crossed wires already. No one dies, but if you do, you come back. They also believed in celibacy and believed that abstaining from any sexual conduct would be the thing that gave you immortality. They believed in the power of alchemy and in Teed's inspired leadership, as Teed claimed himself to be the seventh messianic leader, with Jesus Christ being the sixth. Lastly, they believed in collectivism, so they lived communally with everyone sharing in the work without being paid. Their first commune was in Chicago, but eventually they moved south to Florida. Ah, uh, Florida. Where nothing weird ever happens for any reason at all. They moved to Estero and began construction on the new colony called New Jerusalem, which was apparently inspired by Christian philosopher Emanuel Swedenborg. Teed envisioned it as an ideal place for his followers and translated it to an ideal of creating a heavenly place on earth while relabeling heaven to constitute a New Jerusalem up above. Teed referred to New Jerusalem as the Korishan Unity which was, to him, a communal utopia. So, in layman's terms, he envisioned this chunk of Florida as his own particular slice of heaven. And I can think of a couple million retirees who would agree with you. So the community was at its peak from 1903 to 1908, where it had over 250 residents, but there were apparently around 4,000 believers of Koreshanity around the country at the time. Teed's grand goal for Coruscant Unity was to establish it as a utopian city of 10 million with streets up to 400 feet wide. Membership into the commune involved a tri-level system. The outer level was made up of non-believers who were willing to work for the Unity. 
This group was called the Patrons of Equation, and they were allowed to marry in and participate in particular aspects of the Unity while not being full-fledged members. The middle group, which was called the Department of Equitable Administration, also allowed marriage, but sexual relationships were only to be for the purpose of reproduction. So you can do it, you just can't enjoy it. And the inner group was called the Preeminent Unity, and it was the Celebrate Commune. This group, for obvious reasons, did not allow marriage within it. The day-to-day dealings of the settlement were governed by a council of women called the Seven Sisters, who lived in a common house on the property referred to as the Planetary Court. And within these three levels, there were three distinct branches, the secular system, the commercial system, and the educational system, which made a total of nine groups. This group built pretty extensively. They established a bakery and a printing house where they published their own newspaper and other publications. They had a general store as well as a masonry, and their power plant supplied power to the surrounding area years before it was available anywhere else in the region. The colony was so extensively landscaped that after this whole thing fell apart, which it obviously does, their grounds were preserved and turned into a Florida state park. The settlement was deeded to the state of Florida and is also a state historic site. Most of the buildings are still intact, and the settlement is right next to the Estero River, which the park allows canoeing through uh, to see the many gopher tortoises which burrow throughout the park. Isn't that cute? At the height of their membership in 1906, the Koreshans formed the Progressive Liberal Party, which was intending to run several candidates for county government against the local Democratic Party. This Liberal Party consisted of Koreshans, Socialists, Republicans, and dissatisfied Democrats. But they were never actually successful. Which, given the state of modern culture, is crazy to me, because who doesn't love a good radical? So in October of 1906, a group of Koreshans were having a rally outside of a train station in Fort Myers. Not interested in hearing the ramblings of some crazy people, uh, the locals ended up getting into a fight with them outside of a grocery store. Teed tried to break it up himself and ended up being severely beaten. He suffered injuries that he never recovered from, and he ended up dying on December 22nd of 1908. Which, by his own admission, shouldn't have happened because he abstained from sex and was therefore immortal, right? But Teed had thought ahead about that. In 1902, Teed published a book called Immortal Manhood, which detailed his relationship with God as well as his death and eventual resurrection. His followers initially expected his resurrection soon, after which he and his faithful would be taken up to heaven as he had predicted. They kept a vigil over him for two days, after which time he began to show signs of decay. And after Christmas, the county health officer stepped in and ordered that he be buried. After that, the group went into decline, which I suppose is expected when your messiah does not return from the dead like he originally intended. Several groups started to split off from the community. Uh, One was called the Order of Theocracy, and it left in 1910 and it moved into Fort Myers and lasted until 1931. The fact that the original commune was celibate didn't help anything because when the most loyal among you aren't allowed to reproduce, that's kind of what happens. A similar scenario happened to the Shakers, which were popular in the Northeast during the 1700s. They weren't allowed to reproduce, and as of 2019, there are only two active Shakers left. That being said, the last remaining follower joined in 1940. Her name was Hedwig Michel, or Mitchell, or Michael, I'm not entirely sure. 
She had learned of the Korishans in Germany and fled to America to avoid Nazi persecution. And she was actually the one to cede the main portion of the commune grounds to Florida to form the state park in 1961. The Korishan State Park, which is now known as the Korishan State Historic Site, was opened in 1967. Michelle Mitchell Michael Hedwig was the last person to live in the planetary court until her death in 1981. She is the only Korishan to be buried within the park. There are two other Korishan cemeteries located nearby, but due to the fact that they believed in reincarnation, very little was done to actually take care of these cemeteries. The only permanent gravestones in place were put there by family members. A foundation called the Korishan Unity Foundation, which is actually now called the College of Life Foundation, are the caretakers and owners of the remaining Korishan land and the archives. After Hedwig's death, control of the Unity Foundation passed to her secretary, Joe Bigelow, and eventually to another man named Charles Dare, neither of which were Korishan believers. So that's the story of the Korishans, which, uh, again, is fascinating as it is hilarious. Just the idea that you can build an entire religious sect based on not being able to maintain it is very interesting. Not to mention the fact that they believed we lived inside a giant shell and that the sun is a giant battery. But the hollow earth theory isn't entirely uncommon. But typically, hollow earth theory believes that we live on the outside, but the interior is hollow and contains substantial interior space. The idea has existed since the foundation of the Christian hell or the Greek underworld. And in Tibetan Buddhist belief, the lost city of Shambhala is located inside the earth. According to the ancient Greeks, there were caverns that worked as entrances leading into the underworld, some of which were in Laconia and Argolis. In Mesopotamian religion, there's a story of a man who, after traveling through the darkness of a tunnel in the mountain of Mashu, entered a subterranean garden. There's a cave called Kruoshan, which I believe I'm saying right, in Celtic mythology, which is known as Ireland's Gate to Hell. And it was an ancient cave from which strange creatures would emerge and be seen on the surface. There are also stories of knights and saints who would pilgrimage to a cave located on Station Island in Ireland, where they made journeys inside the earth into a place of purgatory. More modern interpretations of Hollow Earth include John Cleve Sims Jr., who suggested that the earth consisted of a hollow shell about 800 miles thick, with openings about 1,400 miles across at both poles. Sims was one of the most famous early adopters of the hollow earth theory, and in Hamilton, Ohio, has a monument dedicated to him and his ideas. He had planned to make an expedition to the North Pole Hole, which is fun to say, but he never ended up coming to fruition. Author, explorer, and lecturer Jeremiah Reynolds would become a proponent of hollow earth theory, his lectures on the possibility of Hollow Earth might have influenced Edgar Allan Poe's book, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, written in 1938. And an interesting anecdote, in 1839, his account of a whale called Mocha Dick, called Mocha Dick or the White Whale of the Pacific, influenced Herman Melville's Moby Dick, written in 1851. Mocha Dick was an albino sperm whale that was involved in multiple skirmishes and attacks on whalers in the Pacific until its eventual death in 1838. 
I just thought that was interesting. It's amazing what you find when you do the research on this kind of stuff. Anyway, Reynolds eventually went on an expedition to Antarctica himself to try and find the South Pole Hole, which again is fun to say, but he was unsuccessful. Reynolds once wrote an article regarding Hollow Earth theory, but Sims never seemed to have any of his own work published, but several books were published based on his theories. Another one from the 1900s, William Fairfield Warren, in his book Paradise Found, uh, presented the belief that humanity originated on a continent in the Arctic called Hyperborea, and that the Eskimo and Mongolian peoples had come from the interior of the Earth through an entrance at the North Pole. Obviously, through the advancement of modern science, we're able to understand that this is obviously not the case. In fact, by the time Sims and Reynolds were touting their beliefs, it was already considered a pseudoscience and no longer held a scientifically viable hypothesis. Now it's more or less held together by the writings of science fiction and fantasy books. My favorite being by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who, for those of you unfamiliar, wrote Tarzan, and his seven-novel Pellucidar series took place at the Earth's core. In those books, the Earth was a mirror opposite of itself on the inside. So where there was ocean on our world, on the inside there was land and vice versa, which in turn made the Pacific Ocean for us a massive desert there. More notably, Hollow Earth Theory is described in Jules Verne's 1864 novel Journey to the Center of the Earth. And in most recent years, it's used for science fiction and adventure genres across films, television programs, and games. The Hollow Earth Expedition in Dungeons and & Dragons and Torrens Passage in Gears of War are both inspired by Hollow Earth theory. So again, I just thought this one was kind of interesting, and to me it was relatable to the Flat Earth theory that we're dealing with now. The only difference being back then, they didn't necessarily have the science or the application to understand how the world works, and now we do, and we still don't believe it. Anyone who wants to debate that, feel free to contact me at Audio Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And leave a like while you're there. I'm trying to build up that following, get some of that clout the kids keep talking about. Do they still say that? I don't actually know. I'm a millennial, so I'm just like sad and tired, and that's my entire personality, so I don't know. But before I go, I want to talk to you about something that I want to work on in the next couple of weeks. Obviously, October is right around the corner, and that is the spooky season. So something fun I want to do is I want to open up the board for you, my dozens of loyal listeners. And I want to hear your stories, and with your permission, I'd like to actually put them on the show and share them for other people. You can record them yourselves, and I'll put them on the show, or you can send them to me via email or message, and I will read them out myself. Like I said when I started, I want to be another hub for this community and allow people to share their experiences and do it with a group of like-minded individuals who are just as interested as they are. Obviously, this is just another version of Jim Harold's Campfire, but uh, I love that show, and so should everybody else. And if I can do something similar for people who are unfamiliar, then I'm happy to do that. So feel free to email me and send me all of your creepy or interesting or scary stories to audiopod at gmail.com. Or you can send them to me on Facebook and Instagram at audiopodcast. So again, leave a like, and if you feel like leaving me a five-star review on anywhere you listen to your podcast, that would just be great. I don't know how you guys feel yet, but I'm really enjoying this. And I would love to keep doing it, so any way we can help me do that, that would just be fantastic. And again, let me know what you want to hear. Let me know what I can do better, and I'll be happy to do it. 
And as I say at the end of every episode, the world is a scary and weird place, and clearly for the Korishans, the sense of community that they had, and the feeling of belonging to something bigger than yourself, clearly that was important to these people, and I think that's important to just about everybody. So stick close to the people that you care about, make sure they know they're safe, make sure they know that you love them. And just remember that all of the darkness and weird stuff in the world, none of it's going to matter when Zorp returns to burn you alive with his volcano mouth. Until next time.